millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart, and for the last 40 years, I've interviewed thousands of veterans about their experience of war. Join me on a journey through the pages of history. Welcome to Peter Hart's Military History. Hi, and welcome to our podcast, First Heap Soldiers. Dun, 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 dun. What this is, this is just we picked six soldiers, and we're going to just tell you bits about them, and it, the idea is to give you some sort of... Uh, I don't know, just idea of what's going on at the First Battle of Ypres in 1914. Ooh, October and November 1914. A long time ago, wasn't it, Gary? Yes. Oh, I see you're in cooperative mood. Well, who's our first selected soldier, Gary? Who is it? Who is it? Who is it? Well, I think we, we decided that we'd start with the, uh, the man in overall command. So we're going to start with General Ferdinand no, surely you mean uh, Sir John French, because he's in charge of the whole battle, isn't he? No, it was uh, under the command of the French, as always. So it's actually General Ferdinand Foch. Now, who is he? He was born in 1851, so he's uh, he's getting on a bit now. How old would that be? 63? <laughs> and uh, who was Foch? He'd been a, a, well, he was a famed academic tactician. He'd been commandant of the École Supérieure de Guerre and was closely linked to French pre-war cult of the offensive. <laughs> During the first weeks of the, of the war, he'd been a corps commander. He'd not really inspired much confidence uh, in, uh, in, in his performance. But the thing about him was, a bit like Joffre in some ways, he had an ability to adapt, didn't he? He, he could adapt to what was going on around him. He, took, he saw the new realities that, that were, were emerging in, in August and September 1914. And... Um, he faced down the theories he'd once believed in and with, with his new priorities fa- forged, Gary, in adversity. Doesn't that sound good? It and does. you've got a quote, haven't you? Yeah, he's uh, reported to have said, infantry was to be economised, artillery freely used, and every foot of ground taken was to be organised for defence. Yeah, well, so that's, uh, that's, that's a different from just the cult of the offensive, isn't it? Yep. The BEF, the British Expeditionary Force. Now, who, why are they under Foch? Well, alongside the French 2nd and 10th Armies. Now, notice force and the word armies. Does that give you some sort of idea of different scale? Um, it does, and, and often people don't realise that, you know, the French were actually at Ypres. Of course they were, They very much so. And altogether, the BEF was under the assembled Northern Group of Armies, all under 
for his command. So he is the command, the area commander, if you like. Now, he's a bit of a force of nature, is young Fosh, very energetic. Uh, he was very bright, uh, and he had ability to inspire them. And he even, even Sir John French, even he was swept away by ga- Gaelic passion. And uh, you've got a quote Gaelic from or Gaelic? Uh, well, I'm going for Gaelic, because I've always sort of been posh. All right, okay, not Gaelic then. Gaelic as in Gaelic. Yes. Okay. Oh, yeah, it's Gaelic, isn't it? It's Gaelic. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, bollocks. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you pronounced that correctly. Yeah. Go on in, Sir John French. Oh, it's me. (laughs) Oh, this podcast is going great already. Right, I'm reaching into my bag of accents and guess which one I'm going to come up with. In appearance, Frost is slight and small of stature, albeit with a most wiry and active frame. It's in his eyes and the expression of his face that one sees his extraordinary power. He appreciates a military situation like lightning with marvellous accuracy and evinces wonderful skill and versatility in dealing with it. Animated by a consuming energy, his constant exclamation, Attack! 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 That was the French version, A-T-T-A-Q-U-E, but I couldn't work out how to say it. Um, Reflected his state of mind, and there can be no doubt that he imbued his troops with much of his spirit. Well, French hasn't noticed uh, that uh, Foch is growing and changing. That's quite interesting, but then you wouldn't expect French, Sir John French, to notice anything about anything, really. He's not the greatest uh, uh, of of, uh, generals, is he? Now, Foch was... Originally, he was indeed determined to break through the gap he was convinced must exist between the German units. They'd just captured Lille and the Germans who had just recently overrun Antwerp in Belgium. Uh, He thought there must be a gap between those two forces. But, and this is key, when he realised the strength of the German attack still coming in, he realised the Germans had mobilised new forces and he realised that this was a sort of determining point in the war. Now, you're going to be Foch and, and tell us what he thought. His... That's the Germans, isn't it? That's the Germans. His plan aimed at breaking through the Allied front at Ypres, the gateway to French Flanders and the starting point of many roads that lead from this region to the Channel ports. The clash of the two forces resulted in a shock of supreme violence and brutality, as well as of amazing duration. The enemy was playing his last card and attempting his last manoeuvre on the Western theatre of operations. Now, you you might be able to, you know, you can sense this happening at a a strategic level, but was it possible for him to tell what was going on on the ground? I mean, could he follow events on the ground as they were happening, or is this just a vague concept? Well, he goes on to say, generally speaking, during a modern battle where nothing is clearly seen, especially in an enclosed country, the results obtained are learned only through reports which show what localities are held by the troops at the end of the day. But when the time, sorry, when the line has been pierced or even merely thrown back, these reports come in slowly and are not clear and definite since the touch between units in the field has been weakened. In fact, it is precisely when the situation is gravest that a commander gets the least information from the front and runs the greatest risk of having no time in which to make dispositions to repair the harm. He's a clever bloke, I think. Uh, he's, he's got a grip of what's happening, even if he doesn't know what's happening, if you see what I mean. Now, um, do you think he trusted the British? Um, um, 
Well, no, probably not. Any reason not. to trust them? Well, it, it, there were rumours that the British were thinking of withdrawing to, to Boulogne. And, and bear in mind uh, French's actions previously uh, at uh, the battles of Mons and Le Cateau and, and how uh, he frankly panicked uh, and worried the French about how uh, how the British might retreat there. So I think he's every reason to, to be a bit concerned. Now, uh, Foch is absolutely, he regards Epes as a sort of last ditch defence line, doesn't he? He, he? he says any, 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 if they lost Epes, he, he saw a catastrophe. And, uh, he promises Sir John French absolutely unstinting support if he would only hold, uh, uh, in the, in this sort of climactic battle that he envisages. Uh, so you've got another quote here. Yeah, Foch says, in face of the tremendous assault which all were sustaining, any voluntary withdrawal at any point would bring in its wake a great converging flood of attacks which we would be utterly unable to stem. In rear of our front line, nature offered no obstacle. For want of time, we had not been able to organise a position to which we might withdraw. Under these conditions, a retreat carried out in full daylight by our comparatively weak effectives over open stretches of ground, wide indeed but cut up by battle, would be rapidly converted into a rout. Crippled and disorganised, we would be thrown back on the Flemish plain and rapidly swept to the coast. So, I mean, I sort of see Foch as providing a bit of steel to, to, the, back, to, to the sort of backbone of uh, Sir John French here. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it, it's the survival of tense moments like this that turns a sort of loose entente cordiale into a real alliance, a, a flesh and blood, one that really matters, that, that holds these two nations that hadn't always been friends. I mean, this is almost the, one of the first times other than the Crimean War they've been on the same side. Um, and so it's not just sort of words and, and, and sort of treaty obligations. It, it's, it's, it's that they actually stick to each other uh, and fight together in the common cause. And but frankly, the, it's probably exactly what, Sir John French needed at that time. He needed that support. He needed to be persuaded to do certain things. And it was recognised, not only by Foch, by others as well, that that was, in fact, what was needed. And they gave it. There's somebody else who recognises exact. I mean, there's, there's some there's sort of jumper rank for past, uh, past uh, Sir John French. And who else really got a grip of things, do you think? I don't know. We, you're talking about jumping a rank. Do you mean going down a rank? Haig, for example, was brilliant at first eight and probably doesn't get the credit that he deserves. And he bears the brunt of sort of some of the early stages of the battle. And he, too, is determined not to retreat. He keeps his nerve and uses his... So he hasn't got much reserves, but what he's got, he sort of feeds into the battle in a, in a controlled and sensible manner. So uh, Foch and Haig working together, that sounds like... Uh, that sounds like... Uh, well, it's not, it's not a boy band, is it? It's a bit but of a double act. It's a bit of a double act and will be revisited later in the war, especially in 1918. Yeah, you confused me when you said jumper rank. You know, obviously, Haig was a subordinate to French. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Deliberate? Yeah. <laughs> I may have been trying to confuse you. Now, let's think about uh, what the we're opposing thinking about forces. Now? Let's, th let's think about the Germans. So, um, we, we're going... We're very grateful, as we always are, to Jack Sheldon's book, The German Army at Eat, in 1914 He's for our next uh, uh, soldier. It's Private Willie, or Willie, Carl. 
So there's there's very little doubt that the Germans that are carrying out the attacks on the Eighth Front lack the skills of their predecessors uh, in the earlier battles of the frontiers. Now, the concepts of fire and movement, going to ground, coordinating rifle, machine guns and artillery to win the firefight before the final attack and careful consolidation of the gains. They were all conspicuous by their absence at Eeps. Now, we are grateful to, uh, uh, as I say, Jack Sheldon, and you're going to be Private Willy Carl. And uh, here's a quote. It's Private Willy Carl, the 2nd Battalion, 236th Reserve Infantry. And again, there's a clue in the uh, in the the name of his, uh, his of his regiment, two hundred and thirty sixth Reserve Infantry Regiment. And the fact that they're using their reserves is key because that's one of the things that slightly surprised the French and the British that the, that there were so many bloody Germans. Um, and this uh, is the point about them not being quite so well trained as uh, as the earlier forces uh, in the earlier battles. Well, he certainly isn't, and, and this whole uh, this whole quote goes to show that. And that, that's why uh, we've chosen it, really. And and Willie Carl, I'm not sure how you pronounce Willie or Willie. Uh, Willie Carl. That's very good. He says this. We had imagined that our baptism of fire would be somewhat different. There could be nothing more depressing than the very public failure of an attack launched as though on exercise against an invisible enemy. Unthinking, section after section ran into the well-directed fire of experienced troops. Every effort had been put into our training, but it was completely inadequate preparation for such a serious assault on battle-hardened, long-service colonial soldiers. That's the BEF. That's, that's a really good point, actually. That is a good description of what the BEF were. They were professional soldiers. We had just reached a meadow on a hillside which was surrounded by trees and hedges when the first British caps came into view. Forgotten for a moment was that little we had learned about modern battle drills, cover and exploitation of ground. In two ranks and in some places three, kneeling or standing, we poured down fire with an abandon which can only be understood by the excitement of the first great moment of this day of assaults. After hours of demoralising hopelessness, here was a task which was visible and achievable. After two rounds fired, standing unsupported, as if on the range, the inevitable happened. Just as I was taking the first pressure on the trigger, I was hit in the left buttock. Why is it always the left buttock? <laughs> Why is it never the right buttock? No what idea. is it about left buttocks that attracts bullets? And I immediately felt the effects of the last, the last strenuous days of marching, days for which we had not in the slightest been prepared, and the loss of blood from the wound weakened me far more than should have been the case. Everywhere there was confusion. Men were flooding back from the front. It was impossible to miss what had happened. Withdrawal? Enemy counterattack? Would we be able to advance once more? Would we wounded not have to be cared for? Yet again we were back in the total hopelessness and paucity of thought which had marked our attacks from the very beginning. The gruesome reality was that I was no longer buoyed up by the elation of being close up to the enemy, but was inwardly extremely agitated by my first experience of being wounded and externally by the total confusion of the events which surrounded me and which seemed to make no, no sense. How, in the circumstances, could an ex inexperienced wartime volunteer make clear decisions um yeah raw troops eh? raw uh, wartime recruited so not had much time for training had they no and i know exactly how he filled um he mentions hours of demoralizing hopelessness it's a bit like doing podcasts with you really <laughs> thank you now 
their rawness, you mentioned their raw troops, it led to scenarios that matched everything the British had claimed at Mons and Le Cateau. You mean masses of troops? Masses of German troops that were just walking forward and and being mowed down at uh, 15 rounds per minute. Uh, But this time, it's it's real. You know, it's not... uh, it's not legend. This is what happened. So they, they are they are not trained. They're not able to adopt sophisticated fire and movement. They're just, in a sense, stumbling forward. They may not be in column, but they are not attacking with any sophistication. No, and the British are slaughtering them. Well, we, we're going to turn to uh, to an example of that now with our next soldier. This is uh, this is Captain Henry Dillon. Uh, now I've got him as Harry Dillon in my book. So there seems to be some confusion. And in the research for this, I was unable to find why I thought he was called Harry, which uh, makes me wonder that all my books are wrong or that I'm an idiot. Uh, no, I mean often you know John, Jack, Harry, Henry. Often people used uh, uh, variations of the name. I, I think it's perfectly possible that he used both. Now, uh, so who is uh, Harry, Henry, Henry Harry Dillon, uh, whatever he is? He Let's was born, call him Harry Dillon. Let's call him Harry. He was born in 1881 and commissioned the Oxfordshire Light Infantry in 1903. Uh, by, and 1914, he's serving with the 2nd Ox and Bucks Light Infantry, a fine body of men, I think we'd all agree. And during this phase, they're, they're in little more than improvised trenches, aren't they? They're not in the trenches of 1940. 15, 16, 17, 18. They're, they're in, they're, they're what? How deep, you think? Th- three, four? About three, four. And there were gaps between them. It wasn't continuous lines. And uh, would they have loads of barbed wire in front of them? No. No. Uh, if they had, yes. It, 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 this is just, it's more a ditch, isn't it, that they're occupying. Uh, that, that's, that's about it. Now, uh, we've got a quote of, uh, of one of these attacks by German infantry. Infantrymen just like uh, Willie Carl. That, that, that's uh, just the same sort of people. So, go, go. Captain Harry Dillon, 2nd Oxford and Bucks Light Infantry. Now, this is on the evening of the 23rd of October, Peter. The night came on rather misty and dark, and I thought several times of asking for reinforcements, but I collected a lot of rifles off the dead, loaded them, and put them along the parapet instead. All of a sudden, about a dozen shells came down, and almost simultaneously, two machine guns and a tremendous rifle fire opened on us. Now, just one point I make it. You should... Uh, when you're looking at a battle, you shouldn't take everything. Uh, so Willie Carl saying we couldn't do this, but here you see the Germans are actually coordinating their fire on, and that's quite interesting. So it, you can't tell one story. A battle is a, a complex series of events, and and this may have been a good unit attacking. We'll see. And it's also uh, the the interpretation of the individual. You know, as with Gallipoli and machine guns on V Beach, it's all about what the individual is interpreting. So. It, it may be that Harry Dillon is interpreting it in a different way. So he, he goes on to say, It was a most unholy din. The shells ripped open the parapet, and trees came crashing down. However, I was well underground, and did not care much. But presently the guns stopped, and I knew then that we were in for it. I had to look over the top for about ten minutes, however, under their infernal maxims, before I saw what I was looking for. It came with a suddenness, that was the most startling thing I had ever known. The firing stopped, and I had been straining my eyes so that for a moment I could not believe them. But fortunately, I did not hesitate long. So this is just a blurred impression of a mass of troops coming towards them. Uh, and uh, it, you can imagine, is that real? What's happening? Is it? Is it? It, 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 it is! <laughs> uh, it's a good job that he, he worked it out, isn't it? Anyway, yeah, go he on. He says... 
a great grey mass of humanity was charging. What a great description that is. Running for all God would let them, straight onto us, not 50 yards off. Everybody's nerves were pretty well on edge, as I had warned them what to expect. And as I fired my rifle, the rest all went off, almost simultaneously. One saw the great mass of Germans quiver. In reality, some fell. Some fell over them, and others came on. I had never shot so much in such a short time. Could not have been more than a few seconds, and they were down. Suddenly, one man, I expect an officer, yeah, I expect an officer, jumped up and came on. I fired and missed, seized the next rifle and dropped him a few yards off. Then the whole lot came on again, and it was the most critical moment of my life. Well, I think it was, wouldn't it? I mean, if you think about it, uh, th- this is a, a cricket pitch away now, 20 yards or so. Yeah. In fact, he says, 20 yards more, and they would have been over us in thousands. But our fire must have been fearful, and at the very last moment, they did the most foolish thing they possibly could have done. Some of the leading people turned to the left for some reason, and they all followed like great flock of sheep. Loads of personal experience accounts talk about this, this bending away from the source of fire. It it is foolish, but it's done. Uh, That's what happens. We did not lose much time. I can give you my oath. My right hand is one huge bruise from banging banging the bolt up and down. I don't think... You often bang the bolt up and down, don't you? (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to continue. I don't think one could have missed at the distance, and just for one short minute or two, we poured the ammunition into them in boxfuls. My rifles were red hot at the finish. The firing died down, and out of the darkness a great moan came. People with their arms and legs off, trying to crawl away. Others who could not move, gasping out their last moments, with the cold night wind biting into their broken bodies and the lurid red glare of a farmhouse showing up clumps of grey devils killed by the men on my left further down. A weird, awful scene. Some of them would raise themselves on one arm or crawl a little distance, silhouetted as black as ink against the red glow of the fire. Now that's a description, isn't it? Well, it's also interesting that in the same description, he refers to them as people and then refers to them as devils in the same description. Well, uh, I think it's a fantastic account. They they got to uh, 20, 25 yards from from his line. It's a really close run thing. How long does it take to run 20 yards? Uh, Not long. No. um, and the, the, when, they're, when the French, re- they're relieved by, who are they relieved by? The French. And this is a crucial part of the story. The British are continually being relieved by the French, who take over more and more of the line. Uh, the French report some 740 corpses in front of those trenches. That's corpses. Um, this is a real slaughter. Um, um, now, they, they're sat in... Uh, uh, where, 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 after the attack, they sat in sort of their shallow, muddy ditches, and they're sort of thinking, thinking about what's happened to them. And uh, Dylan has a sort of emotional response to it all. It's not really unusual, is it? No, Captain Dylan says it all fills me with a great rage. I know I've got to stop my bullet sometime, and it is merely a question of where it hits one, whether it is dead or wounded. I don't care one farthing as far as I'm concerned, but the whole thing is an outrage on civilization. The whole of this beautiful country is devastated. 
Broken houses, broken bodies, blood, filth and ruin everywhere. Can any unending hellfire for the Kaiser, his son and the party who caused this war repair the broken bodies and worse broken hearts which are being made? Being made this very minute within a few hundred yards of where I'm sitting. Wow. It's powerful stuff. This guy, I mean, I remember when I first read this, and it's often quoted, it's in the Ox and Bucks history, it's in various things. Uh, this is Armageddon writ large, isn't it? It's a re- this, is, this is continental warfare, this is destruction, this is death. To be honest, it didn't look like, I mean, he talks there, he doesn't have much hope of surviving, does he? No, there, there's a, a resignation to the inevitability that he's going to cop it at some stage, and it's just a question of whether he would die or be wounded. So what does he go on to say? Dead Germans, wherever one goes, I suppose five million men take a lot of killing, but we ought to have accounted for a good few by now. I suppose this is one big battle that has been going on for about six days. It's certainly bloody enough for anything. I'm now second in command of the regiment, so if the colonel gets hit, I take command. Rather too much responsibility for my liking. Still, it might be a chance of doing something. Uh, I, I mean, that's a captain. And he's next in line for command. That that shows you the casualties. This is the erosion of the BEF that people talk about. They're, they're, they're just being eroded away. Now, when he's back in reserve, he he records some private thoughts. And I like this. It's that because it's the duality. It you can't rely on people thinking one thing and cons- consistently sticking to it. It's it's like it's like our responses to COVID. One minute we're saying, oh bugger it, let's all just do what we like and live our lives and see what happens. And the next minute, we're being cautious because we don't want to catch something. And he's a bit like that. He he mingles sort of cloying sentimentality with murderous hatred. And this is a great quote. And it also features the only argument I think we've ever had, Gary. So we'll see if we can get over this, this rather controversial bit. Captain Harry Dillon. I heard a poor kitten mewling. Now, you didn't want to say mewling, you wanted to say meowing. And, and, and you say there's no such word as mewling. No, I just said that I thought it was a spelling error. I can't believe that. And there's been harsh words spoken, haven't there? Yeah, you mewled me. I heard a poor kitten mewling in a cottage and went to its rescue. I found the poor little beast starving. Also, lots of rabbits, pigs and goats, all of which I let out. He's really nice, this bloke. Uh, he's so soft-hearted, and uh, it, it, it's, I'm, bit, I'm thinking of Snow White here. Are you thinking of Snow? Yeah, no, don't think of Snow White. I know you and Snow White. I've seen your specialist film collection. Well, I'm with you. I'm thinking of Grumpy. I took poor kitten to some friendly gunners who gave her the best that they had. The whole ground round the place was covered with dead, etc. But I don't know why. Perhaps because one has got so used to this sight, one did not feel it. It does seem hard, though, that these poor animals should suffer because men are such foul creatures. I do hope, however, that before the inevitable bullet or shell comes my way, I shall get my bayonet into a German. Oh, a bit of a swerve, though. (laughs) (laughs) Lovely and cuddly. Oh, it's all terrible. But before I die, I want to get my bayonet into a German. So what happens to uh, Captain Harry Dillon? Well, it's sad. He doesn't get a bayonet or a bullet or anything. Uh, uh, he, he dies of pneumonia in January 1918. Uh, by then, he was a lieutenant colonel. Uh, he was just 37 years old when he died. Uh, no age at all, really. It is no age at all. Uh, I'm about twice that, in fact. Yes. 
Yes. Oh well. Well, who's next? Uh, another tale from the the archives. This is uh, Private William Quinton. Tell us about. You, you've got a few details about him, haven't you? Yeah, Private William Quinton of the Second Bedfordshire's. Are they a fine body of men? They are a fine body of men, and they were in trenches in front of the uh, Gula Belt on the twenty fourth of October. Um, so this is a day after uh, Dylan's adventures. It is now they're they're in these trenches, but it's not long before they come under heavy fire. And it's evident that the Germans are about to attack in the area. Now, many men are experiencing concentrated shell fire for the very first time. And it may have been a light shower compared with the storms at Verdun and, and the Somme. But for them, it's torment. And uh, you're going to be Private William Quinton. I am. Uh, so here we go. Shrapnel shells were now bursting over our trench, the bullets shooting downwards and burying themselves in the back wall of it as we crouched under the parapet. The report as they burst about 12 feet above our heads was deafening and made our ears sing so that conversation was practically impossible. The machine gun fire was now more intense and I could also distinguish rifle fire from the lines. We knew that this outburst was a preliminary to an attack, but we also knew that they would not come over whilst they were still shelling our front line, as they would be running into their own fire. As soon as they lifted their fire and concentrated it on our support and reserve lines, that would be the moment of attack. Grey dawn was taking the place of darkness. I was trembling. I looked at Bosley, that's a, a friend of his. <laughs> his knuckles showed white through the flesh. He was gripping his rifle so hard. His face was white and set. And he looked at me as if he didn't recognise me. In a sort of what, trance, isn't he? And, uh, well... Mm, now, suddenly, the bombardment stops. And it's now that Quinton realises the moment had come. And he goes on to say... The company officer came dashing round to our gun position. Uh, he's, uh, he's in the machine gun section. The gun is a machine gun. Get ready, boys, he shouted, flourishing his service revolver. Give them a warm reception. Rifle fire broke out along our line. We jumped to the parapet, head and shoulders above it. The sight that, meet my, that met my gaze was one that I shall never forget. A horde of Germans were on their way towards our trenches. Rifles with bayonets fixed held before them. Hundreds more were clambering out of their trenches and forming a second line as they broke into a sharp trot towards us. They were so close together that their shoulders touched as they ran. As fire broke from our lines, they shouted hoarse cries and broke into a charge. I observed all this in one brief moment. I took aim with my rifle and fired. I blazed away into that oncoming mass of humanity that was out to annihilate us. At the same time, our machine gun began to bark. The Germans immediately in front of us, the foremost being less than a hundred yards away, began to fall like nine pins. I was firing my rifle as hard as I could, only pausing to reload the magazine with ten fresh rounds. A few of the enemy had got in advance of the rest and were only about 50 yards away when our guns stopped. Now, Quinlan, uh, so he's a machine gun. Now, this is a maxim. And he then takes, takes uh, he gets his onto the gun himself. Uh, I presume there's been a casualty or something. And he says this, What if our gun failed now? Even a temporary failure, and they would be all over us. In fact, it flash, 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 flash. Oh, Can I borrow your teeth? In fact, it flashed. Thank you. <laughs> through my brain that with the number of Germans coming over it was just a matter of time before they swarmed into our trench to bayonet what was left of us suddenly Bosley winced let go of the gun and grabbed his right shoulder he slid down into the shelter of the trench and I hastily took over grasping the firing handles and pressing my thumbs on the trigger lever I fired without taking aim into the grey mass in front of us steam was now coming from the escape 
plug near the muzzle as the water in the barrel casing began to reach boiling point. Belt after belt of cartridge went through her till I began to think our ammunition supply must be getting low. Still those grey-clad figures came on. Hundreds of them, dead and wounded, lay out in no man's land. A fresh line leapt from their trenches and made a wild rush towards us, but were met with a withering fire. They got about halfway across, their officers urging them on. Then they wavered and stopped and finished up by throwing themselves flat and sheltering behind their own dead. They found effective shelter behind this gruesome barricade, for the dead were piled two and three high. I played the gun on them, just skimming the barricade, but they did not attempt to come forward again. They lay there, not risking to expose themselves and not daring to return to their own trenches. We had a little breathing space now, the attack having died away to nothing. Whereas before the attack I had been shivering, I was now wet with perspiration. Our trench presented a terrible sight. Of the 12 machine gunners, only five of us were left. Now, uh, Mm. you've got some comments to make here, haven't you? Well, one of the things is that I think, uh, you know, the the Germans uh, uh, have a legend, the legend, uh, der Kindermord by Epen, the Massacre of the Innocents. And you can imagine why that legend began the description of the hordes of, of Germans that uh, that are coming towards them and the fact that he's firing at the barricade and the barricade are dead bodies. Um, so it's, a, it's not, they're not quite as it's presented in the, in the myth, but no, they're, not they're, at all. They're, you can see where the but legend is. You can see is. where it come from, yes. Now, this is a typical British account of the fighting, you know, that they, although they were indeed causing severe casualties the uh, at the same time the british battalions were slowly being eroded away you know there's a there's a fixed amount of the bef uh, and they're being eroded away by the germans attacks and the fierce artillery bombardments that precede them now a salience formed uh, with the british lines bending back on either side of the menin road as the germans edge forward village by village ridge by ridge copse by copse and uh, the the next account is of a, a British counterattack, and uh, this is uh, this is Lance Corporal William Finch. Now I interviewed William Finch back in I think 1984, uh, and uh, it, it it you know I'm going to have to be honest with you. Uh, other than it was in Birmingham, that's all I remember. But that is a long time ago. Uh, how many years ago is that? Uh, 36 years ago I interviewed this chap. Uh, it was only a short interview, but he wasn't in the army. He, well, he was in the army a fair while, but he, the, the active service part wasn't too great. He served with the first Worcesters in, in Ireland from 1904 to 1902. <laughs> Can you believe it? I interviewed someone who was in the army in 1904, 116 years ago. Uh, then he was in the 4th Worcesters in Malta from 1906 to 1909. He, he then leaves the army in 1907. Uh, he's a civilian in Birmingham, and then he's one of the reservists called up, uh, and he's put in the 2nd Worcesters, uh, and w- with whom he serves on the Western Front. And he's there at the crisis. Now, he's at the actual point of the salient at, at Gellervelt, which is on the uh, the Menin Road, isn't it? It's right at the point of the salient. Uh, and there's a seesaw battle raging there for two days from 29th of October. 31st of October, Gellervelt is overrun. And it's at this point uh, that the Germans seem to be broken through. They're about to sweep through towards Ypres, just as Foch had feared just as Haig was trying to prevent. And then a small but desperate counterattack was made on the Gellervelt Chateau by the 2nd Worcesters. And this is uh, Lance Corporal William Finch, 2nd Worcesters, describing what happened. It's a great story. I remember him telling me 
Vaguely. <laughs> when the charge went, the bugle went. We had to go for them, that's all. You know how excited a crowd would be at a football match when they score a goal. Tremendous uproar. That's just how the charge started. Shouting, of course. Make as much noise as you can. During the charge, I couldn't tell you whatever happened. We all go into the Germans, charge into the Germans. They were very close. I had control of myself all the way, but what happened I could never say. Yeah, part, sometimes this is because they don't want to remember uh, things like bayoneting. And the thing about oral history, if you want people to tell you what happened, don't ask about things like this. It, it, it doesn't sit well because it's not something they want to talk about. Anyway, uh, suddenly he runs out of luck, doesn't he? Just, just, just as they get to the Gelleville area. So what happens to him? Jerry opened fire straight across the Menin Road at me, which was the other side of the hedge with a machine gun. That's when I got hit in the leg. As I dropped down, I called out for help. I had to lay on my back. As I got up, Jerry hit me in the back and the metal ration tin saved me from having my backbone broken. Anyway, I was calling out for help and a fellow gets over to me, laying there by myself, gets my kit off, cuts my trousers off and tied just above my knee. Then a second tie in the thick of my thigh. I saw the blood come down his shoulder. He'd been hit and I said to him, for God's sake, leave me, I shall be all right. But he finished the tying of the second tie on the thigh. He said, well, Corporal Finch, I shall get you back again. Now, um, he, he does actually go off then, um, probably to get help. Obviously, he can't, he can't uh, sort of, th- so he's left, Finch is left on his own. And he, he must have felt helpless lying on that battlefield. Because uh, what's going to happen? With the rain, I got this German oil sheet and kept myself covered. All of a sudden, in the daylight of the morning, this sheet was thrown off me and it was a German officer stood by me with his revolver at my head. I shouted, have mercy on me. He searched me and I said, well, I can't do you any harm now. As he was going through, he pulled out my wallet, two kiddies pictures. I was asking him for a drink of water and he wouldn't. Then he threatened me again and he walked away. So uh, this is straight, you know, I'm glad that German didn't shoot him. Anyway, uh, Finch now tries to drag himself off. He's trying to get into a ditch. He's trying to get into cover because, of course, there's still firing going on over the battlefield. There's still artillery, British artillery fire. It was only a few yards, but it seemed a hell of a way to drag myself. But anyway, with the aid of my gun under the bad leg, my hands and elbows, I pulled myself into this ditch where I lay for three and a half days without being found. The rain, I'd got a handkerchief in my pocket and put it into the sheet above me, into the puddle of water, and kept squeezing it into my mouth and spitting it out. I'm still lying in the ditch with the water going under me. As I lay there for the third day, I said, I hope, please God, I'll be found today, which I was. The German oil sheet was flung open and there was two bayonets towards my head. I shouted quick to the fellows with the bayonets, Have mercy, I'm English! They said, What brings you here? What regiment are you? I told them, the Worcesters. They were two Coldstream guardsmen. They went away and brought back a stretcher, put me onto it and carried me into their lines. It's quite a story, isn't it? And uh, he had six bullets in his leg for the rest of his life. Uh, Do you know what? For all that, that six bullets is a lot. That must have been all. uh, But he was lucky to survive, I think, uh, given, given all the that happened he was really lucky and do you know he he was actually reported missing presumed dead because of course he was there for days and and he 
in the cock-ups of the time. He, he said that he was uh, actually recorded as killed on the war memorial of his local town. So, uh, but I was never able to check it because uh, the internet didn't exist then, and I, I was always a lazy sod, uh, especially in 1984. Uh, so I feel guilty now. I uh, given, see you looking at me with scorn well, and contempt. <laughs> given that he was in the army in 1904, he must have been really old in 1984 when you interviewed him. Yeah, he was. He was. He was. He must have been pushing a hundred, mustn't he? He was a, a good, a good old boy. I, I wish I could remember more about it, but it was so long ago. Now, who's our next one? Well, the next person is, is rather posh, so you're going to do this one. This is Captain Beauchamp Tudor St. John. Are you saying I'm posher than you? Uh, well, yes. You're, you're, given his regiment, I think you're really fitting. Now, by this time, the BF's being rapidly eroded away. We mentioned earlier. Now, on the 1st of November, it was the turn of Captain Beauchamp Tudor St. John of the 1st Northumberland Fusiliers. Oh, now they really are a fine, fine body of men. Who was caught unawares as he approached the village of... Weishat, which the uh, the Tommies called White Sheet, uh, and, and I may do so from this point on. Yeah, it's, it's a lot a, easier. It's a lot it's easier. Same, uh, which is up on the Mezzine Ridge, uh, which just south east. It's just south east of Eaps, yeah. So you're going to be Captain Beauchamp Tudor St John. Off you go, Captain. I walked quietly out from behind the cover of the cottage and proceeded towards the wood. I had not gone very far, however, when I became the centre of attraction of a hot fire, which must, I think, have come from a machine gun. I started to run to the wood at once, and the ground all around me was spattered up like the surface of a puddle in a rainstorm. I got another thirty or forty yards when I felt as if I had suddenly hit my, my right arm against a hard obstacle in the dark. It was very hard and a very sharp blow and, and left a numb sort of tingling sensation in my arm, quite different from the stinging of the blows of one or two pebbles which had been knocked into my legs by the shots on the ground, which had hurt me quite as much. <laughs> I still ran on, but the wood looked a long way off and the shock of the wound had scared me a bit and I felt rather dizzy and out of breath. So I decided I would do a die and selecting as comfortable a place as possible, as, as, as I could, sorry, I wheeled round in the most approved fashion and fell on my face. This had the desired effect for a minute or two, and the, the firing stopped. So basically, he's playing dead. Ah! <laughs> yeah, now, unfortunately, when you're playing dead, you probably shouldn't do what he did, because he tries to get himself comfortable, and he checks the state of his wounds. And it's at this point the Germans realise he's not dead, and so they take action to correct their error. Oh, is this going to hurt? I must have wriggled too much, however, for again a hot fire was opened on me. I lay for a few seconds wondering where it would where it would get me, the bullets splashing mud all around me. Suddenly I felt as if someone had gently drawn something rather hot along my shoulder and round my throat. This could not have been the bullet, as it appeared to me to take quite an appreciable time to get from my left shoulder to the right side of my throat. I think it must have been the blood flowing. Certainly as soon as it reached my throat, I began to choke, cough blood, all through my mouth and nose and felt as if I were choking and everything looked sort of a blue colour. I thought I was done for and wondered how my family would take the news and whether I would know how they how, how they, they took it. I felt aggrieved and angry at the thought of leaving this jolly old world for, for to me it had always been a jolly place and it seemed rather hard lines having to leave it without seeing Roger and Madge again. No, oh, no, I was just thinking whether he was Roger in Madge, but no, it's Roger and Madge. <laughs> However, I prayed to God to hurry the matter up, as I was getting very uncomfortable. I love the sort of insouciance of he just 
thinking, oh, this is hurting too much. Oh, I wish you'd get on with and die. Uh, he does survive, and uh, and uh, he, I think he dies in the 60s. But it's a, a good account of someone having a terrible experience, I think. Uh, and now the last one. This is the other thing that happened to the BEF. What's going to happen to Sergeant Thomas Painting? Uh, now, who's Sergeant Thomas Painting? Well, he'd enlisted in the King's Royal Rifle Corps in 1907. He'd been a railway man before that. And he served with the first King's Royal Rifle Corps in Egypt from 1907 to 1909. Then he'd actually been present, lining the streets during Edward VII's funeral procession uh, in 1910. And they mobilised to fight on the Western Front. He'd been at the Battle of Mons, he'd been at the Battle of Aisne. Uh, and then he was caught up in the frenetic fighting around Ypres. And on 2nd of November, Sergeant Thomas Painting had been moved forward with, uh, with the 1st King's Royal Rifle Corps. No, yeah, yes, 1st King's Royal Rifle Corps. I've lost the use of my teeth again. <laughs> what? Why can't they just be called the KRR? So, oh, I can't say that either. <laughs> anyway, he's with somebody or other um, in the positions on the Menin Road. And they've got another smattering of shallow, unconnected trenches. They've got no barbed wire in front of them. And he's a professional soldier. And you're going to be him, aren't you? You're, you were a professional soldier, were you? Were you like him at all? No. Sergeant Thomas Painting, 1st King's Royal Rifle Corps. For a start, he's a sergeant and you were only a corporal. For a short while. I made the lads improve the trenches and then we had a couple of hours lie down, stood to next morning at dawn and fired away at Jerry. We suffered heavy shelling. It finished up with four of us left to use a rifle. Half of us had gone. Jerry must have broken the line somewhere to the left of the guards and to the right of us. They came round behind. He took our support company before he took us in the line. I was busy firing away at Jerry in front. You've got nothing to command. Everybody for themselves. Jerry out at 150 yards in front. I saw the platoon on my left going forward. I thought, well, that's funny. They're moving without telling me. However, they'd been scooped up. Three Jerrys walked round the trench just behind me. One had me covered with a rifle, another with a revolver, another with a bayonet. Well, I'd just emptied my rifle and was in the act of putting another five in. The breach was open. I couldn't shoot because I hadn't got anything in there. I'd got a very bad position to get a grip on my rifle with the butt being back. Jerry gave me the chance to put my rifle down. He could have shot me in the back or he could have bayoneted me, but he gave me a chance to put my rifle down. I had to put it down. That was the last thought in my life. I thought I might be killed or wounded, but I never thought of being taken prisoner, and it broke my heart. I thought I was a better man than Jerry, you know, man for man. But there you are, you couldn't do anything about it. And this is, uh, you know, uh, when there's no point in carrying on, I mean, he's an unloaded rifle and people lined, you know, he's just been shot. So he surrendered. And he, him and the survivors of, uh, and there's not many of uh, his platoon, are, t are taken back behind the line by their... By, by the Germans, uh, and they, they get to a small hollow. Now, uh, here's an unex <laughs> an unpleasant experience because the, the British artillery uh, start doing things, don't they? Yeah, some painting says, our artillery opened fire and they were dead on the mark. It hadn't got a lot of noise, but it's got a nasty sweep, our shrapnel. The bullets burst and a German officer said, ah, Englander, the English artillery, no good. He'd barely said that before he was killed. It was too good for him. A great story. Not so good for that poor German officer, who was probably lovely. 
Uh, but there you go. Uh, that was from the 18 pounders. Uh, they're quite, uh, 18 pounder shrapnel fire is a deadly thing. Uh, now, he, he, uh, uh, he, he also had chance to see just how many Germans the, the, the British infantry had killed. Because as they're going, they're going across a crowd, the battlefield, which has got corpses littered all across it. Uh, and how does he react to this? Does he react with sorrow? He says, going through the German lines as a soldier, I was pleased to see the number of dead, the price they'd had to pay for their success. But as a human being, I thought, look at that. Look at the trouble that's going home to wives, mothers and sweethearts. So I quite like that. And, and, and I think that's nice to remember that every bloke on both sides, they are, they've got a family that, that, that's going to mourn for them. They've got friends that will miss them. And uh, they're, they're a loss to, to everybody. Uh, now, what happens to painting? Well, he's a prisoner of war in various camps of Germany, and then he manages to escape, gets to Denmark in November 1915. And when he gets get back to England, he's made a musketry instructor uh, with the 5th King's Royal Rifle Corps. I thought I'd concentrate <laughs> uh, back in England. Uh, and uh, that's as far as I, I know about it. Now, um, so where are we with the, the First Battle of Ypres? Well, uh by November, in November 1914, the Germans are pressing on. Uh, there's huge attacks, there's slaughter. The, the story goes on for another week or so. Creeping towards Epes, aren't they? Moving ridge. You, you described it perfectly. Ridge to ridge, cops to cops, uh, village to village. And, and, and the BF, what are they doing? They're falling back in front of them. Uh, do, do they hold the Messines Ridge? That's an important act. They're pushed off the Messines Ridge, uh, just south of east. They're thrown back from Passchendaele Ridge and they just about cling on to the bulk of the uh, Gullivelt Plateau, but Gullivelt itself fallen to the Germans. So uh, we're, we're pretty... Now, now who... Is, 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 this, is this a British tale now or, 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 or do, do we go back to Foch here? Well, we go back to Foch because you've got to recognise that in the end, the French, Foch and the French performed as near-perfect allies. They moved up their reserves and they gradually take over more and more of the salient as the BF shrink before their eyes. And in the end, the successful defence of Ypres was equally to the credit of the French as well as the British. In the end, the Germans are held back. So it's a hell of a story, isn't it? And I think these six soldiers we picked, I think there's six, I'm not great at counting, am I? I think those six soldiers show a variety of experience. You've got the supreme commander, if you like, of the northern group of armies. You've got Foch. And then you've got a successful defence from Harry Dillon uh, and showing attitudes. You've got, you've got uh, a counterattack. You've got, uh, and you've got, uh, you, you've got prisoners of war. You've got, you've got a, a gamut of experience. And of course, you've got poor old w- Willie. The, the, I, I think of him as Willie, the, the German uh, f- who had to attack. And I think we've covered that sort of experience. And it, it's a terrible battle, isn't it? Yes. And, uh, you know, we have to remember that there isn't just one battle of Eats. Uh, you know, it go, it's a story that goes on throughout the Great War. But, uh, you know, it's always important, isn't it's it? It's always important. Is it, it the town that's important or is it these ridge lines? No, it's the ridge lines. Um, I mean, the, the town becomes important to the British and, and of course, after... A the, symbol. After the war, uh, Sir John French be- becomes um, uh, whatever it is, Earl of Epes, uh and takes Epes as, as part of his title because it is, is that important. Uh, but it's important as an image to the population of Britain. Strategically, it's the ridges. Tactically. Tactically. 
But <laughs> Belgium strategically important. The cockpit of Europe, Gary. Never heard of it. Never heard of it. Well, thank you very much, Gary. I've really enjoyed chatting to you this morning, and I'm glad that your implants are making you look exactly like a horse. Yes, thanks, Pete. I'll put a picture up. Cheers, Jums. Cheers. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee forward slash pgmh or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?